All right, I guess this uh, would be a good point to get started. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew Shapiro, and I will be moderating today's panel on behalf of Boys at Cornell. Uh, I would like to thank everybody so much for coming to the second and final event of the third day of our summit. Uh, we've heard some from some amazing speakers so far and facilitated some really engaging conversations between our panelists, moderators, and the audience, including um, the local community-based investing panel by Michael Schumann earlier today. Today we have um, 180 Degrees Consulting Club from Cornell, represented by co-presidents Anna and Samika. Uh, 180 Degrees Consulting is the world's largest student consultancy with over 80 branches in 33 countries. And although the Cornell chapter was founded just three years ago before the pandemic in 2019, the chapter has established itself as a well-known name across our campus. They aim to provide high quality, high impact consulting services to nonprofit organizations and socially conscious businesses in the Ithaca community Ithaca community and beyond. Today's presentation is centered around financing nonprofits from the perspective of student consultants. I'll now pass it off to Anna and Samika to introduce themselves and the wonderful presentation they have ready for us. Hi, thank you, Andrew. Um, so as you said, my name is Anna um, and I'm currently a senior studying applied economics and management at the Dyson School with a focus in business analytics. Um, I actually joined 180 with Samika back in the fall of 2020, um, and I was first an analyst and then a project manager for two semesters, and now we are the joint co-presidents. Um, and outside of 180, um, I'm originally from London, I now live in Philadelphia, and I'm actually a transfer student from Vassar College as well. Let's go ahead, Samika. Yeah, so hi everyone, I'm Samika. I'm, as Anna mentioned, one of the co-presidents of 180 this semester, and I'm a junior, um, and I'm concentrating in applied economics and management at the Dyson School, just like Anna, and um, I'm also doing a minor in philosophy, um, and yeah, uh, if uh, we're ready to get started, we can go ahead and do that. Sure. So um, before we do, we'd just like to preface that um, what we're about to share does come from the perspective um, of us being student consultants for social impact organizations. Um, and so being student consultants has given us a lot of connections with a variety of nonprofits. Um, but it does mean that we do have a different perspective from others in the industry. Um, and I like to think that by sharing our perspective, we're giving you like a little puzzle piece that you can add to your knowledge bank um, and take with you as you guys all think about how you want to participate and, and take part in the world of sustainability as well. So you can go to the next slide. So yeah, I, I've used this word perspective a lot already. And I think first we should just start by sharing um, how that perspective has been developed and what exactly our experiences have been. So my first semester at 180, I worked with a Pakistani environmental advocacy organization and they focus primarily on clean water initiatives. Um, next, I worked with an adaptive sports center for veterans and the physically disabled, um, and they provide all kinds of recreational opportunities for people all over the US. Um, I think one of the coolest sports that they do is dragon boat racing. That was my favorite by far. Um, and then finally, I think most impactfully for me, I worked with a charter school that focuses on environmental education and community engagement. Yeah, and then I've also had three um, different projects being involved in 180. Um, the first is that I got to work with a local nonprofit in the Ithaca area focusing on youth entrepreneurship, which is really cool because there's a lot of kids out there with ideas, but they just don't know how to put them into fruition. So we, we got to work with that organization and 
Um, a lot of the kids actually sell their ideas at the farmer's market, which is really interesting. And then I also worked on Anna's project, which was the Adaptive Sports Center. So it was a really awesome experience to get to work with Anna as my project manager. And then uh, the third experience that I had was working with an educational organization uh, focusing on food security and education. And um, that was actually based out of India. So it was really cool to get that kind of perspective. Um, and yeah, so we've had kind of a variety of um, experiences and projects and we've worked with a lot of different sectors. And yeah, so um, we can move on to the next slide. So um, our goal today is just to share our main takeaways from working on our three projects. And we have these three takeaways um, and we'll go into detail on each of them, but I'll just read them out loud. So the first one is that for many nonprofits, receiving corporate and government grants to, to support their efforts is pretty unfeasible. And increasingly because of that difficulty, we see a lot of nonprofits turning more towards online donation sites such as GiveGab and GoFundMe. And there's a lot of new platforms coming out every day. Um, so it's really interesting to see how that progresses. And then the third thing is that one impactful way that students can get involved is to actually help um, smaller nonprofits with their social media projects, just because social media really is everything. Um, and I know everybody says that, but it really helps smaller organizations get the attention they need. Um, so we can move on to the next slide. So to get into the first takeaway, um, as I previously mentioned, um, smaller nonprofits often struggle to gain access to corporate and government grants. And essentially um, the definition of a grant is pretty straightforward, but um, it allows an organization or an individual to receive uh, funding going towards a particular cause. Um, and this kind of comes in two different um, methods and that is a corporate grant or a governmental grant. And with governmental grants, the government basically just gives an organization a certain amount of money and they're free to use it based off of the terms of the agreement, similar to a corporate grant, except um, with corporate grants, there's often a little bit of an obligation to also sort of promote the corporation in a certain respect um, because it's like a corporate sponsor um, and generally grants do not have to be repaid and it kind of gives um, the notion of it being free money but it really isn't because there's a lot of resources that are required to identify and apply for and receive funding um, so there's definitely a lack of access for smaller nonprofits because they don't necessarily have the capabilities to receive these grants. And the reason there's a lack of access is that it's a time consuming process. Um, a lot of organizations do not have the time to be going through all the different documentations needed to um, apply for a grant, uh, let alone receive it. Um, there's also a lot of instability involving grant policies. So one day there might be a certain revenue threshold that is needed and then you put in your application and the next day it's it's not the same thing. So there's a lot of different changes that occur in grant policies. And the final thing is that there's the lack of corporate connections um, for smaller nonprofits. And that's super important because in the corporate world, networking is really everything. And unless you have those corporate connections, it's pretty hard to, um, to get those grants that are needed. So um, I'll pass it off to Anna to talk about a specific example that she worked on. Yeah, so to illustrate the challenge that Samika just mentioned, we can move on to the next slide, actually. 
Yeah, um, so I want to refer back to the project that I did with the charter school. Um, a lot of people are unfamiliar with what a charter school actually is. Um, they're classified as public schools, but they get only about 60% of the funds that a quote unquote regular public school would get, um, which means that fundraising is a huge challenge for them. However, being a charter school, they do have a bit more flexibility in their curriculum and things like that. But for half of our project, we worked on fundraising, which we broke down into two main groups, I guess. We, we looked into both grant and donor research and then also online platform donations, which we'll mention a bit later on. Um, so the first thing we did when it came to grant research though was we investigated New York state policies for giving grants to charter schools. Um, and we had a whole team of us working on this and it was utterly impossible. We could not figure out who qualified for the grants, how much money they would give out, um, what entity was actually responsible for providing these grants and even how to apply to get the grant money. Um, so for example, on the component of who qualified for the grants, um, the technicalities were extremely confusing. Um, they said that the charter schools had to be high performing, yet also newly authorized. So it's a bit hard to do both. Um, it, it was just it was just utterly impossible. Um, and it became it became clear right away that this was going to be a very unfeasible method for this school to receive money. Um, not only does it take a lot of, of time from the staff who are already pressed to do other things. Um, they have to research the grants, they have to apply to them, but they might not even be awarded the money at the end of the day. And we've seen these, these scenarios play out in, in other organizations where a lot of their time is spent applying for grants um, and they actually don't get the money that they're applying for. And with that, we'll pass it back to Smika to talk about our next takeaway. Yeah, so um, as Anna was discussing, because of uh, the struggles with obtaining grants, a lot of nonprofit, uh, excuse me, a lot of nonprofits have pivoted more towards online funding sources, um, particularly some of the websites that are most popular are GiveGab, Neon, and as you probably know, GoFundMe. Um, these websites are successful because they allow for crowdfunding and also for small to large scale donation drives. Um, and that's why they're seeing so much traffic in the nonprofit sector. Um, and for our projects, we really like to recommend these platforms to our clients because they're just so versatile and they really do have the potential to reach a lot of people, which is um, essentially the goal with a nonprofit. And um, yeah, so with these websites, they can be used for a variety of purposes. Uh, the first is just like background fundraising, which allows um, for passive management. So donors can essentially donate at whatever time that they want and whenever they find the website. Um, it also allows for donation drives and personalized sponsorships. So um, a lot of customization there. And um, the fact that these donations are more accessible for specific causes is really important and they're entirely online which means that donation pages are super easy to share and to spread to a larger audience but it does require a more sophisticated online presence which is something that we often take for granted just living here in the U.S. but um, we have had some difficulties with just accessibility to the internet and executing some of the strategies just because of that reason. Um, so we can move on to the next slide um, and again I'll pass it off to Anna. Yeah, so we're going to highlight another project that just helps illustrate this point that Samika is mentioning. So with that adaptive sports organization that we worked on uh, last spring, um, we, we saw that this organization had found huge success in using their online donation platform. 
Um, and there's already been a huge rise in the use of these platforms, but this organization seems to be well ahead of everybody else in their use of it. Um, and it's already a really significant part of how they receive funds right now. And we can we have examples down below of, of the kind of platforms that they can use, but this particular organization used one called Neon. And it allowed them to be really creative in how they got donations. And it did so in a way that still simplified the internal work of collecting, of collecting the money. Um, so for example, they could link their online donation platform to their social media pages, which we'll talk about a bit later on. Um, and it really allows them to meet prospective donors where they are. Um, they also use it to create more personalized fundraising initiatives. So for example, people could donate to a particular part of the organization, which they resonated with. So if you're really passionate about dragon boat racing, you could donate to that particular dragon boat racing fund, which was, which was very fun. Um, the other thing that it allowed them to do was to create um, donation pages themselves. So, for example, I saw one member of their staff create a donation page where they were getting sponsorship for a long distance biking challenge. Um, so at the end of the day, they can manage all of these creative ideas and still have an aggregated uh, database of all these donors that they can connect with in the future. Um, and this was actually the first project that I led and I definitely made a few pitfalls in this project. Um, I think the biggest rookie mistake that I made in this project was trying to do way too much for them. Um, I gave my client so many ideas, I think I completely overwhelmed her with, with what to do and it was very unhelpful. But one thing that I did do right, I think, was just illustrate the importance of having um, a good marketing strategy to go along with these online donation platforms. Because you can have the best online donation platform in the world, but if you don't have marketing strategies to act as sort of that middleman to drive people to your website, that isn't going to, isn't going to help. So uh, social media is a huge part of these marketing efforts to drive people to donation platforms. And we'll talk about that uh, right now, actually. So we'll go to the next slide. Yeah, so for this final takeaway, we just want to double down on, on why it's so significant to, to have a good social media page and, and how students can be involved in, in nonprofits and impact them in this way. So as we mentioned previously, um, good marketing is the key to fundraising and what better ways there in the modern age than to, to use social media. Um, we've increasingly seen organizations ask for our help when it comes to this topic, um, as our generation is, is sort of the expert on these things. And it's something that we've grown up with and have um, a lot of experience with, they're very in tune with it. Um, yeah, so for one thing, social media can be used to educate the community about a particular cause. And I think we've all seen this a lot recently with Black Lives Matter, or maybe you've seen posts about environmental causes. Um, another really important part of social media is that it signals an organization's credibility to potential partners. You can get so much from a person's social or an organization's social media page, um, such as do they have enough staff to actually maintain that marketing effort? Um, do they have a sophisticated logo? Are they a well-known organization? Do they have a lot of followers? Um, all of these aspects that a social media page can signal, um, it can really increase the likelihood that someone will become involved in the organization. And, and as you mentioned before, if they do have a good social media page, this is sort of the middleman connecting them to the donation pages. Um, and one thing that I would caution is that if we want to help in this aspect of, of the business, you want it to be sustainable, not in an environmental sense in this case, but in that our initiatives are, are able to continue long term without our help. Because we can, we can make graphics for a month or two, but if the organization 
is going to keep doing these long into the future, they need to have some strategies for how to do that when we're not there, right? So we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out some, some key insights for them on how to have a successful social media page into the future. Um, and we've sort of identified the following components as being really good for a social media page. Um, first of all, they should have some kind of story-like aspect, such as highlighting impact through the eyes of someone who, who benefits from the organization. Secondly, there should be some sort of frequent and graphically pleasing posts and a professional logo. It's also really great to provide information on social media about giving, about buying merchandise, about how to visit the organization and much more. And as you've all seen through TikTok and YouTube and Instagram, there's been a rise in these short video clips. So using those shorter information distribution channels can be really helpful as well. And I'll pass it to Samika to talk about an example of all of this. Yeah, so going off of what Anna was saying, um, an example that I recently worked on was the food education nonprofit that I previously mentioned. Um, they really needed a more cohesive social media strategy just because um, they were looking to get donations from international sources, but they were based in India. And um, so they really wanted to pivot their social media strategy to be a little bit more effective and to increase participation within their programs and overall donations. So the three areas that we looked at, and I kind of mentioned these, but I'll put them into co the context of this project. Um, so we sought to help them make their social media a more cohesive story. And that kind of came in two different respects. So the first one was to obviously build a cohesive theme on the Instagram. People like, um, people like consistency and they like to be able to see things that are visually pleasing. And the second aspect of that is also just to build a narrative. So to feature people that were actually impacted by the program. So this is a youth oriented program. So we wanted to feature um, some of the kids that were impacted and the kind of nutritional changes that they've made in their diets. And um, we found that the most successful advertising campaigns on their website and their Instagram were the ones that featured cohesive stories. And the second aspect of that is that it's really important to make information easy to digest. Um, as Anna previously mentioned, um, information is best on social media when it's presented in bite-sized kind of tidbits. Um, whether it's for better or worse, people are getting used to being presented with inf information that way. So it's really important that an organization continues to do that, whether it's by putting their mission in their bio and also talking about their most recent initiatives on their Instagram highlights or things like that, that just make it super easy for a potential donor or a potential participant or volunteer to really see what the organization does. And the final thing is to encourage engagement. One thing that we found with this organization is that they didn't really encourage the people that were commenting on their on their posts and things like that to keep returning and to keep engaging with the posts. So um, one of the recommendations we made was to just um, reply to every single comment that they received. It's not like it was an, an unmanageable thing to do. And that definitely increased engagement a little bit. And um, overall, one strategy that we recommended was to have more live cooking sessions um, because they had one that was super successful, but they didn't really think to continue doing that. And we found that once they started doing those things, um, it made their social media strategy a lot better. Um, and yeah, so I think that that is um, our presentation, our key takeaways. Um, and I think we're free to get into the Q&A. Awesome. Well, thank you for presenting on all those really interesting, uh, great projects that you were involved with. Um, it's really great to see how these nonprofits get their funds. And it was really informative because I feel like not many people 
really know and people like might assume this with these large grants but um on like a smaller scale with some of these organizations that like you mentioned is just not possible so it's great to see that um, and great to see a gen z uh oriented organization connecting these nonprofits with these innovative solutions to be able to uh, raise funds so um, looking forward definitely to seeing what you guys are up to this spring um, as a member of the uh, the Cornell community. So yeah, um, but yeah, we'll get into the uh, panel Q and A now. So um, I guess I'll start with the first question being that you noted in your presentation that the organizations um, must have an adequate marketing strategy to see an impact from crowdfunding. So what are some common pitfalls organizations organizations make when developing a marketing strategy for crowd crowdfunding, and how can they be avoided? Okay, I can um, I can answer that. So as I mentioned, one common pit pitfall in a marketing strategy is to not have a cohesive story or um, have your social media pages or your GoFundMe page or whatever not detail a human oriented story, and that's very important um, because especially when working with crowdfunding, I think um, you really have to understand the nature of your audience. Um, one of the best things about crowdfunding is that it's easy to share and people aren't really going to share something that they don't empathize with. Um, so I think adding a human element into whatever you do, um, whether it is social media marketing or a crowdfunding page or anything really um, that allows people to empathize with the material is really important. Yeah, and one thing that I'd add on to that, um, as well as a human component, is not using the full features of social media and investing the time into really learning more about how to use things like reels or Instagram stories or adverts or highlights. There's so many complexities to social media now that people need to be familiar with. Um, and, and one pitfall that I made was trying to help a company do way too much too quickly, like using Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and YouTube. So I think one way to avoid the pitfall is just to focus and, and really tune into one particular platform and figure out how to use it to the best of your abilities before moving on to the next one. Awesome. Yeah, I think that, um, like Samika mentioned, empathy is really important and getting that human connection. That's the whole uh, purpose behind social media is connecting with others and generating that compassion and empathy. Um, and like you mentioned, um, the tech tools are very important with social media and are always advancing as we move um, into web three and added web two. And it's gonna be very interesting to see how social media evolves with the um, onset of that. So um, yeah, so I'll get to my, the next question. Uh, so the next question is whether it is due to the inefficient systems in place, uh, staffing constraints, or even something simple like a lack of network connections, you mentioned that uh, smaller nonprofits often struggle to receive those government and corporate funding uh, through those large grants. And so do you think that larger nonprofits are better equipped to lobby for these funds? And what kind of policies or actions could take place that could help to kind of level the playing field in this regard? Yeah, so to your first question about whether larger nonprofits have easier access to these things, and I, I think definitely that is 100% true. Um, there's a couple of reasons for this is just one that these kind of organizations have a bigger team that they can dedicate to writing applications and networking and finding those grants to begin with. Um, and on the flip side, you also see that governments and corporations are probably going to trust those larger organizations more that, you know, they're more established. Um, and so for the second part of your question on the solution side of it, 
Um, it would be great to see governments allocating funds to small nonprofits as well as bigger ones. I know they do have those out there, but maybe we need to increase not only the level of them, but um, how easy they are to understand and how easy they are to access. Um, and then on the corporation side of things, I think one way to invest in smaller nonprofits is to invest in your community because often those are where the non, like the smaller local nonprofits are. Um, yeah, I can add on to that. I think um, what Anna mentioned about larger nonprofits having greater accessibility, accessibility to grants is absolutely true. Um, and I think as far as some further actions that could be taken, um, I actually used to work at a nonprofit consulting company when I was in high school, and it was really interesting to see how much work was needed in order to do the basic things like filing tax forms and getting um, revenue statements and stuff just so that a nonprofit could apply, it could form itself and apply for um, grants from corporate sources and government. And um, so I think the government could potentially make it more accessible. First of all, some of these like, um, just like not having so much documentation being necessary or just offering more consulting services to nonprofit companies. That's something that could be done. And I think um, for larger consulting companies in general, one thing that they could do is offer a greater amount of nonprofit consulting as well, because um, seeing that kind of impact up close of what companies can do is just was really interesting to me. And I definitely feel like we need more of that. I think that understanding and access and knowledge of these things is definitely something that's really important um and you even see it with like investors as uh michael schumann mentioned in the earlier panel today uh people that are high net worth become accredited investors and have easier access to certain investments that um people like you and me might not be able to have access to and i think it's the same in this kind of nonprofit setup even with the the large fish taking out the small fish um and so because you mentioned it's like definitely the little things that can get in the way of smaller profit success, whether it be like something like filing taxes or whatnot. And those things add up in a big way that can um, really affect access for these, these smaller organizations. Um, so yeah, we'll move to the next question. So next we have, um, basically I think it's safe to assume that no consulting project is without its challenges and difficulties, especially with a student run organization like yourselves where you're trying to juggle both school and extracurriculars and all that. Um, so I'm wondering, what are some of the common difficulties you face when working with nonprofits and small businesses? Um, and do these challenges tend to be different when consulting a domestic partner versus an international partner? Because like Voice, uh, your 180 Degrees Consulting organization is a global organization that has reach around the world. Yeah, I can, I can go ahead. You're definitely right in that every single project has a lot of challenges. And I'm sure my challenges are different to Samika's because you run into them every single semester and every single project. Um, one common one is the client expecting too much of us. We are a student-run organization and sometimes that can be really tricky to manage the expectations of what we're, we're doing here. Um, and the other one is I, I found being a project manager, it can be a really tricky balance between um, taking up someone's time um, and also giving that, but we don't want to be a burden to them, but we also do need to take up some of the time in order to do the best work that we can possibly do. And finding that balance is, is really tricky, I think. Um, and it requires a lot of trust on their part to, to give us some of their time in order to, to do the best that we can do. Um, and in terms of the international part of your question, there are a lot of unique challenges that come with that too. One is the time difference. That can be a really big challenge that you don't think about, but that can be very difficult. 
Um, also, the knowledge of the region, um, particularly in regard to finances, can be very difficult when we're very unfamiliar with the processes that happen in India and Pakistan, for example. And we also want to be culturally aware when it comes to our work with them, so that can also be a challenge. Yeah, that's all definitely so true. Um, especially the time difference thing, like we've been dealing a lot with that lately, but um, I think some challenges that I have particularly faced on my projects are, um, first of all, a lack of responsiveness. Like Anna mentioned, um, these people have a lot on their plate and it's sometimes a little bit difficult for them to balance giving us a little bit of time so that we can do some work for them and also just um, being able to do our own work. Um, so that's something that's important to think about. And on the side of international clients, one difficulty that we've had is with language barriers. Um, last semester, we were hoping to work with um, a client from Lebanon. And um, not only did we have a little bit of a lack of responsiveness on that end, but we also um, couldn't speak to them because um, they didn't speak English. And we had no way of translating between English and I, I don't remember what language it was, but um, yeah, so we ended up not being able to work with them, which is really unfortunate, but um, hopefully that's something that we can deal with a little bit better in the future. But those are the issues that I've faced. I think both of you shared these challenges that are very unique to a student organization. Um, and it's great to hear about your experiences with that and also for you guys to experience that hands-on. So um, that's great that you, kind of work through those challenges and are able to uh, provide these services to your clients, um, regardless of these barriers. And one thing I, you mentioned the language barriers, that's something I didn't really think of, because um, I'm just so used to English being a commonly spoken language, even in like European countries and stuff, but um, it definitely can be a hurdle sometimes. And then as you mentioned, the time zone is killer. I, I missed a meeting the other day with someone who was located in Spain, because I added six hours instead of subtracted them. And it, it, it can be a hassle sometimes, but um, yeah. So uh, next, um, I know that you work with a range of companies with the commonality between them being their impact-driven missions. Um, but that being said, some projects are more geared towards other forms of impact. So some may be more towards social or economic change as opposed to environmental advocacy. But we know that uh, with sustainability and ESG, all these need to come together in order to, um, to create innovative and comprehensive solutions. So how do you approach incorporating all pillars of ESG uh, when taking on a new project? Um, I can, I can uh, see if I can answer that. Uh, so I think with um, ESGs, um, you know, we kind of deal with one issue at a time, as Anna previously said. Um, we don't really have the capacity to take on super big initiatives just because it's more than likely that the nonprofit itself is dealing with a very small issue within a larger issue, that, um, which is what the ESG goals are associated with. But I will say that um, even the, some of the smaller issues, like for example, if you were to take something like food insecurity within a specific community, a lot of times that is tied to a much larger issue involving ESG. So like for example, with the food, food insecurity, a lot of that does come from like climate change and access to water and because there have been droughts or whatever. And so I think you can look at some of the short-term solutions um, and try to help your client implement some of those solutions. But also, if we're thinking about long-term sustainability for the organization, it's also really important to um, kind of weave in some of those long-term solutions into the mix. Um, so 
getting your client to think more about food security um, during a drought season or something, even if that's not necessarily the question at hand, I think is really important. So being able to provide both short-term and long-term solutions is one thing that we do. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think some of the organizations that we've worked with have sort of encompassed all the components of ESG kind of naturally. So the charter school that I mentioned, they, you know, they're working with students on education, they're working in the community, um, and they're also doing environmental work. So all of these things just kind of happen very naturally. Um, and then I worked with also the Pakistani organization, um, and they're a very small nonprofit, and they were trying to take on just way too many things at once. They were doing clean water initiatives, women's rights issues, um, criminal justice issues, all kinds of things, and it was getting a little bit too chaotic. And so I think one, one strategy for that is to approach one mission, say clean water, and approach it in a way that encompasses all the factors of ESG, right? So they could focus on clean water, but do so in a way um, to make sure that it's economically sound and that it's, it's being done in a socially conscious way. Yeah, I think definitely that focusing on the separate ESG goals that are different parts of the puzzle is key. And uh, like you said, a lot of small firms can, it's, it's better for them to focus on one at a time um, so that they don't go overwhelmed, especially because of their size and they can't take on all these other things that some large organizations are able to. And I think that's part of the reason we have um, I think it's 14 is the number of those ESG goals so that people can kind of um, take one goal and really focus on it and, and focus on making that better um, and kind of create a broader, more sustainable uh, word for, world for us all by addressing those issues individually. Because if you try and take on too much at once, uh, you ended up not doing a great job at anything. So that's definitely true. Um, next question is uh, back to the concept of crowdfunding. So with the rise of crowdfunding in our society, particularly um, on blockchain technology platforms, there is great potential for sustainable initiatives to gain access to capital required to grow uh, rather quickly. We see a lot of organizations bootstrapping cash together really quickly on these kinds of platforms. Um, and so I was wondering, do you think that blockchain technologies will play a role similar to social media fundraising efforts uh, for nonprofits in the future? And have any of your projects uh, that you've worked with in the past implemented blockchain solutions? Yeah, so a lot of what we talked about today involves a lack of resources that small nonprofits face, whether it's time and energy. Um, and when we're talking about investing in blockchain, blockchain technologies, whether it's like NFTs or cryptocurrencies, that's going to take a lot more of their resources. Um, and given that the future of these things is very unpredictable, I don't think that it's something that um, will be invested in potentially. It may be uh, if they have more time and money to do so, um, but I haven't personally seen it yet. Um, and the only way I really do see it being a big part of the future of of small nonprofits like this is if the donation platforms themselves sort of um, help that transition and make it a part of the offerings for them um, because I don't think they can invest the time into learning about these things themselves and making those offerings, yeah. Awesome, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely true that when you're such a small organization, it's hard to dedicate resources towards uh, projects and building your own infrastructure when you're already getting overwhelmed by all these things that you want to do and chase after. So that's definitely a good point. Um, next question is kind of in regards to our earlier panel today that um, some of you might have attended as well. So earlier today, we had a panel with Michael Schumann, as we've mentioned before, who discussed the value and importance of local community-based investing. 
Um, so the question is, how has the financing of nonprofits you've worked with impacted the communities um, in which they are based? Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, just because I think the funding that nonprofits receive is directly tied to the enrichment of whatever community that they're in. Um, we actually have a client this semester who is directly tied to um, actually enriching the his local community, which I think is really cool because not only are they working with, um, you know, local educational groups and things like that, but they're also encouraging reinvestment in the com in the community, which I think is really important. But um, yeah, I think the more work that nonprofits do within a local community, it only enriches um, the community more and encourages people who are impacted by the work that nonprofits are doing to reinvest in their own community because they've kind of seen the progress and where it's came from. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting notion of community-based investing. Awesome, for sure. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't checked out uh, today's earlier panel, definitely uh, look at his uh, talk on this going to be published on YouTube after the summit. It kind of highlights a lot of those values of community-based investing. Um, so for our second to last question, uh, before we get to the live Q&A, and for those of you who haven't submitted your questions already, make sure to get those um, in the Q&A function so we can answer those uh, shortly here. But um, something that's in common with both boys and 180 degrees consulting and it makes them unique is that at our core, we are vastly a global network of Gen Z and young people and, and students from around the world working to make a difference in our society. So how has this become a part of the value proposition that you offer to your clients? And why do you think it's made for such a successful business model as you've had such um, great growth around the, uh, the world with all these chapters that you have? Yeah, I think I think clients really like working with us because we give um, a fresh set of eyes on everything from this new generation's perspective. Um, and our generation, not to be corny, but we're going to be leading these initiatives in the future. So I think it's really valuable for them to be getting us involved as soon as possible. Um, and the other component to it is that we are students and I think that they, they jump at the opportunity to teach us as well. Like we learn so much from the nonprofits that, that we partner with. And um, it's amazing to get that hands-on experience. And I think that they really enjoy giving us that hands-on experience as well. So it goes both ways. I think that's definitely true where you said like um, that kind of communal learning where you're both learning from them and they're learning from you. And that's something that even at Voids we see with our partners and stuff. It's very much uh, both parties involved or if there's multiple parties involved, everyone's learning at the same time and trying to make the world better and uh, incorporating all these different ideas. So that's uh, definitely holds true. And I think that the Gen Z element is definitely a very strong part of the value proposition for any Gen Z organization. So. Um, yeah, that brings us to our final question for today. And so this is kind of similar. We've been asking a lot of people um, throughout the summit kind of similar versions of this question. And so basically, um, we know that the human race is currently at odds with uh, more environmental crises around the globe than ever before. Um, you name it, climate change, plastic pollution, ocean and marine life issues, all these different things are going on. And so how do you think we can overcome these challenges? And what are notable ways that your organization has uh, helped to do so, even if on a small scale? Um, well, I think when it comes to tackling some of those 
seemingly impossible problems. It sounds cheesy, but it's best to start small. And that's what I really think is good about some of these nonprofits. And I'm really glad that we get to help them out is because they see issues that are going on in their own communities and they take the initiative to help solve those issues. And even if it is a smaller contribution, that's really the only way that we can take care of these seemingly impossible issues. Um, I think um, a lot of these nonprofits, like even if their work is only reaching local communities, it starts at the smaller level. And a lot of times when you start up high with like the government, um, a lot of that funding and a lot of that attention kind of gets lost as you kind of trickle down within communities. So it's really cool that we get to help out um, some of these smaller organizations. I really like that. Yeah, I really agree with Samika's point on starting small and starting from the bottom up. Um, and the other thing that I would add is I think that we all really intrinsically care about the environment, that we're all like environmentalists at heart, but just some of us choose to act on that instinct more than other people. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm really proud of everyone at 180 for actually acting on that instinct when it's sometimes difficult. You know, they could be doing homework on a Monday night instead of helping their, their nonprofit partners. So I think it's it's really valuable that they're spending their time um, trying to make an impact on and, and acting on that instinct, like I mentioned before. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think that all of us have, like you said, that was a really good way of putting out that, um, that impact driven person inside of us. And it's, it's just about getting people to act on it. I think that with our, um, with Gen Z's and um, as generations go on, we've become better at acting on those things. And like Samika said, it definitely starts small and it's great to see all these small initiatives kind of take a uh, wave across the world and really start small but in large numbers uh, many different small projects around contributing to um, achieving those goals that we want to achieve so uh, with that we'll get into some of the live q a from our audience so if you haven't submitted a question already uh, feel free to do so and we'll start going through some of those um, so yeah so the first question um, that we have is do you, it's from Ben Hillier. So do you see a future where corporate funding becomes more available to smaller nonprofits or will crowdfunding kind of always be the most viable way for small nonprofits to secure funds? Um, I think that kind of depends. Um, so if corporate, you know, the corporate sponsors are more willing to put themselves out there and actually um, seek out organizations and make it more accessible for small organizations to receive funding. I think that's definitely something that could happen. But I think what's so unique about crowdfunding, and we've said this several times, but just like how accessible and shareable it is, it's so unique to any other platform um, for receiving donations. And um, just because people can share a campaign or an, a information about a particular organization, I think that's what makes it so unique. And just the reach is just so much more extensive than corporate funding. So I think just with the nature of how social media and the internet works today, I think crowdfunding is definitely the source to look at. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it also does depend on the issue as well. When you look at um, things like medical research and healthcare, that just requires a really significant amount of funds. And sometimes you can get that through crowdsourcing but, or crowdfunding, but um, if it's a really niche kind of medical issue, um, it won't work as well and you'll need this kind of big lump sum money from, from corporations. So I think it does depend on the, on the topic at hand as well. 
yeah, I agree. I think that it definitely varies between um, kind of what you're trying to achieve and stuff, but certainly crowdfunding is great. And I really like the crowdfunding mo model because it kind of shows like the will of the people and people that really want to help make that difference. And, and like you guys said before, like it's the small changes and the people getting to act on those things that really makes um, a big difference in our world. So, um, the next question is from Will Davidson. So he asks, what's the best way to increase the national uh, total amount of funding for charities. So how, how do we numbers higher in terms of um, increasing funds for Hope, did Anna drop off of the Zoom? That was odd. I think so. Um, oh, okay. Back. Okay. Um, okay, I can answer that question. So I think the national total funding is definitely a big question. Um, I think it's, it's definitely pretty controversial. Um, people might say taxation or things like that but i think the biggest thing is reallocation so just taking some of those resources that might go to a larger nonprofit um some a nonprofit that's already successful and kind of already has their feet on the ground and possibly reallocating to a smaller nonprofit and making the process a little bit easier for for them is definitely one thing um yeah i think reallocation definitely ties into a lot of different issues um, involving funding and making sure people have the right you know social structures and things like that but yeah that's what i would say sorry for cutting out i meant to close my chat window and then close the zoom window <laughs> what was the uh, the question that was asked yeah, no, no worries anna um, so the question was basically in regards to how do we increase the national total amount of funding for charities and uh, increasing those yeah, total amounts for different organizations So yeah, Samika pretty well covered it. So um, I guess we can move move on to the next one. But yeah, I agree, Samika, with what you were um, saying. I think that it's great to donate to those large charities because they have the ability to create that impact. But we, in the end, want to have uh, all of those ideas, innovative solutions come together to make the difference uh, in society that we want to see. So um, the next question is from a mutual friend of ours, Mr. Jonathan Gotian, actually, who, um, for those of you who don't know, is a, a member of both our audience and 180 DC. Um, so Jonathan is asking, how much of an impact does a student nonprofit consulting organization have on its clients? And what benefits do student organizations like 180 DC have um, in comparison to professional consulting organizations? Well, I think one really big difference between us and maybe a larger professional consulting firm is that our projects are constrained by time and resources. So obviously we're not gonna have the same level of impact maybe as you know, a, a bridge span who does um, long projects, with a lot of people, um, a lot of expertise. Um, that being said, I think one really big benefit that um, nonprofits get from working with us is that they get to communicate with students and work with the community as well. We're working with the community by working with these clients, but they also get to, to give back in a way as well. And I think it's like a very mutually beneficial process that you don't get maybe with one of those larger um, companies. And the second thing that I'll say um, is that we often don't get to see the impact of our work because it is a semester long, um, especially when it revolves around fundraising because it takes so long to get those fundraising initiatives up and running. And especially during COVID, um, it's been even harder to see the impact. So I guess it's sort of TBD on how much of an impact we're having in that sense. But I do think that in terms of like the social connections that we're making, we're making a really big impact. Yeah, just to like add on to that, Anna kind of, said what I, was, what I was gonna say at the end, but I think um, the benefit of working with a student-run organization 
just in such kind of close contact um, in a, in, as opposed to working with a professional consulting organization is that we're not just like suits sitting in a room, like we're real people. And it's really nice to get to interact with people up close and personal and to actually present our findings and how we went about finding those findings um, directly to them, which is something that I really like about being part of 180. Yeah, I think that everything both of you guys said is, is very true and holds true. Um, and I think also like, we're just so much fun to interact with, you know, like college kids are, are awesome to, to work with in a lot of regards. And we're definitely, we're there because we want to be there, you know, we're not receiving hefty paychecks. So um, definitely I agree with those points. Um, and so the uh, last question, unless anyone else uh, from our audience wants to submit in some last minute questions, we might have time for one or two more after this. Um, but another one from Will, how effective do you think charities are com uh, as compared to social enterprise? Definitely a, a tough one to think about. I, I would definitely have to think of that one for quite a while. Well, when I think about a social enterprise and thinking about maybe correct me if I'm wrong, like a, like a solar panel company that's making a profit still. Um, and I think that they can, that again, that goes back to, it just really depends on what the mission of the organization is. Um, if it's sustainability, I think that having a social enterprise model can um, really, really work. Um, if a lot of the companies that we work for though, the clients, I should say, that model would not work. Um, you do need to rely on on government grants or corporate grants. And that process is so frustrating to think about that you're just always looking for money when you can't just have that be naturally occurring in the background, the way a social enterprise um, can have that happen. But um, I do think it can be, it has to be more effective for those other organizations. Otherwise they wouldn't keep running the models that way and make those kind of impacts, yeah. Um, I think that's totally true. I think just to like add on, I would say with the social enterprise, I think you have to be kind of wary of, you know, sticking with your goal that you started with. Um, I think there are a lot of really interesting social enterprises out there and it's kind of sad to see some of them kind of take that and just as like they make more money, it just kind of twists their initial um, objective that they'd come up with to support social causes. So um, I think, like Anna said, it really depends on how they go about doing it. But I think both models are totally fine, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's definitely the combination of those different kinds of models that we have in society and the different approaches to doing it that um, is going to enable us to, to make those changes uh, that we want to see. So. Um, yeah, I think that's the end of, of Q&A for us today and the end of our uh, day three and second session of day three. We have um, multiple events tomorrow lined up for you guys if you want to come check those out um, all the way through Friday, Saturday, and finally ending on Sunday with a uh, student alumni panel discussion. So make sure to check out those um, other events. And um, yeah, thank you guys so much for presenting on behalf of 1AADC. And, uh, have a good night, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much.